I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And do we have a lot to live up to? <laughs> After the last episode. You are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And we have been discussing Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca. We are at the end. We're going to discuss the last quarter of the book or so. And then next week, we will answer your questions. We also are going to do a movie episode. So sometime in the next week or so, we will record a discussion about the newer Netflix one. And then, of course, the classic Hitchcock movie. And we will discuss those and get that episode uh, up to you soon. So in the meantime, we have the Q&A episode, which we'll do next week, which will go you know live one week from today. So make sure to send in your questions on Facebook or on Instagram or via email. You can email us at well, probably the best way is just david at goldberrybooks.com. You can also, as of course, just post them on the threads on social media. But we've come to the end. And Tim, last week, the internet was all a Twitter. I don't know. Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. Twitter yeah. about the in-the-moment expressions of awe and wonder that were flowing forth from your mouth. Yes. And, and then they also were interested in your surprise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... What we need to know now is you're not going to experience great surprise at the end, you know, on the episode because you did get to the end, right? You did. I did. You did. I did. Okay. So what though was your response when you got to the end? Mm. What were the words that were coming out? What did your face look like? I was not surprised. Uh... As soon as we saw the kind of false dawn on the drive back from London, I knew everything that was going to happen or that had happened. And it was satisfying. It was really satisfying. I thought it was like a very uh, uh, thrifty conclusion to the book. It hit all the right notes. I will say though, it left a couple of fairly big mysteries out there, which I think is good for kind of like the relish of the book that you don't know. For me, the big thing is, who is the he that she ends up with after Mandalay? Mm-hmm. Is it her husband? Is it Max? Is it Frank? Totally unanswered, right? Completely unanswered. And I thought that was like a nice bit of, it'd be very easy to wrap that up, you know, with a couple of sentences, but I kind of like that she left that undone. Let's come back to that. I yeah, think we can put a pin in that. What's an, no, no, that, that's good. Like, this is like an introduction. What do you always say? Like, tell people when you're doing donation speeches, coming, right. tell people what's coming. In five minutes, I'm going to ask you for money or whatever it is. Yeah, we're, but not until we're then. We're not asking for money. Yeah. So what, um, what, is the, what are some other mysteries that you felt like left, were left on, hanging? What happened to Mrs. Danvers? It, it, it's, to me, it's clear that she is responsible. For, she's the arsonist, right? <clears> but... <throat> where is she in this whole thing? Like, where did she go? Is Mm -hmm. she, did she stay at Mandalay? Did she, you know, light the fire and then light out? That's a little bit of a mystery. Mm -hmm. I think those are the only two that I had. But those seem sizable. Heidi, when you first read the end of this book, you're on that airplane flying over those, you know, middle America. Right. What, uh, what was your, what did your face look like on that airplane? I was so into this book. This is the first page turner I've read for a while. And I'm like, I have to find, I'm not reading closely. I'm not reading mm. carefully. I just have to find out what happens. <laughs> um, I read a lot of books and, and we read a lot of books on the podcast that 
are, you know, we're the moviegoer, for example. That's a good example of kind of how some of our last year, our, our last several close reads books have been kind of like pushed through, take some interpretation. We're reading about like the problems of modernity, put into a story, all that kind of thing. And and that's not like that's a different kind of challenge, right? That's not a page, the moviegoer is not a page turner. Not at all. So you know, page plotter. Yeah. It was so fun to read a book and talk about a book that was just so plot driven and so full of surprises. So yeah, my face was was full of surprises. I was probably, I mean, I don't know, but maybe I didn't show it on my face internally, my internal face. <laughs> <laughs> my internal face. <laughs> as a as a as a counselor and a psychologist, a which part of the which part of I'm our inner life? I'm going to make that a thing. I've got face. this. Mm-hmm. Gonna, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it the subconscious? It. Is it the... Ooh, see, now this is not a page turner anymore, this conversation. <laughs> hey, who were you sitting next to on the flight? Whenever I sit on a flight and I get, you know, paired up or, you know, I'm sitting on a triplet seat, do you, are you a, a chatter? Are what you is your, kind of what quiet? Is your... What is your guess on this, Tim? Are you going to guess that my I am guess, a chatter? My guess is that you're not a chatter. Oh, no, I unless, am not a chatter. Unless you're like, you're like oh, this is a, an interesting person that I would like to share my response about my podcast with. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a like earbuds in the ear. This is my wall. Like this is my circle right here. Can I ask a question about yeah. your dress? Do, are you a, a neck pillow person? Because I'm going to guess, I'm actually, I'm not looking at your face, so I don't get any indications. I'm going to put guess on my internal a, face. <laughs> <laughs> my guess is that you might even be a neck pillow person or a neck donut. Uh, so, or an eye cover. I don't oh, have an eye maybe, cover. Okay. I don't have an eye cover, but I have been known to have a neck pillow on okay. occasion. But not, uh, One of those I, donut applying, neck pillows. Yeah. No. Yep. no. I, but I do have the kind with like a strap so that you can put it you know, the pillow part on the front so that you don't do that head bob thing when you're napping. Oh, on the yes, plane. yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so I have one of those, but I didn't in this particular flight because I'm not 60 yet, although I do like <laughs> birds, which I'm, when I'm 60, I'm going to fit right in because I'm going to be yeah. like, that yeah. is a yellow-bellied Twitter head. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Being I, only 29, you still get a win. You're still my favorite. Um yeah. So anyway, that's I did not. I yeah. That's all it takes. I'm really Got easy it. to please. So. <laughs> Noted. Just yeah. lie to you. Got that's it. That's right. Okay. Yeah. That's hey, sorry, why Tim's my favorite. You gotta um, lie about the right stuff. Yeah. Okay, you just fair. you pick yeah. and choose your battles. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, I yeah. feel so much like a little sibling to you too. A like constantly. Yeah. Little nut. Yeah. yeah um, poking and prodding. Yeah. Anyway, I did not have my neck pillow on my flight from Denver to Charlotte because it's like three hours. So, no, but I did have my book and I did have my surprise face. And I love this. I love this novel, but not because it's like some deep literary masterpiece, just because it's fun. I've got to bring something up here. Graham texted me, Graham Pittman, friend of the friend of the pod, friend of the pod, friend of the pod. Close reads adjacent. Exactly. He texted me this morning. He said, I'm reading Rebecca. And then he, he sent me three, 
three consecutive texts, which I found both hilarious and perhaps useful for conversation. Mm -hmm. First, is anyone likable in this book? Mm. Second, everyone is the worst. Mm. (laughs) Third, it's just one dolt marrying another dolt. One dolt marrying another dolt? Yep. Hmm. So let's take Graham's questions here, his opinions of the book, and let's talk about it. I actually am very curious about this question of whether anyone is likable in this book, whether everyone is the worst and whether it's just one dolt marrying another dolt. Those are, uh, you know, that we can discuss that later if necessary. But having come to the end of the book, how do you feel about the question of whether anyone is likable in this book? Now, this is a somewhat subjective, subjective thing. And, you know, we don't need to come up with some kind of large objective truth for how to interpret this book based on this question. But I do kind of find it an interesting one, given Du Maurier's approach, where she doesn't go out of her way to make one character seem heroic or likable or like, like where truly you latch onto this person. She's definitely not after that. So, but by the end of it, what, what do you think? Like, Heidi, you love this book. I do. How does that play into it? I think that they're likable. So I like them. I like them all. I don't like Mrs. Danvers, but I like her as a character. I like the story. Right. I like Gothic literature. I like the melodrama. I like the pathetic fallacy. I like everything about it. I'm all in. So that's just a preference issue, though. I can see, I, I understand there's a lot of chatter on the, the Facebook page. A lot of, you know, there's plenty of people who said, I, I don't like this book at all. Or I don't like this character at all. I don't like mm. Maxim. You know, I'm not team Maxim, all that kind of thing. Uh, why doesn't she marry Frank? It's, he's a murderer, you know, so I think that that's... The Frank thing is interesting. Yeah. It's not part of the story. He has right. never expressed interest in her. So, you know. So well, but I, I just like this. it. I think that the narrative is written so that we kind of put an eye on Frank, like, oh, wouldn't they be good together? He's so nice to her. He understands her. He listens to her. Yeah, okay. I I think it's not that he. Well, and Maxim brings it up to her in their conversation. Maxim says to her, Okay, I see what you're saying. Frank's company better than mine. Yeah. So So a theoretical idea, not something that's like actually possible. Right. Yes. Right. By the way, that Frank is like hitting on her or anything like that. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. That line from Maxim, okay, I'm sorry, Team Maxim, but that's so pathetic. Like, you like his company better. I'm just a no-good murderer. You know, it's like, (laughs) really, bro? Like, really? You're going to, like, play the pity card knowing what you've done? Like, you like him better. Okay, I mean, like, what if she does? What if she does? You Like, sorry. You drowned your wife. You submerged well, the boat. Her. Okay, right. sorry. Yeah, you shot her. You submerged the boat to hide it. You like Frank better than me. Okay, yeah. It's a little tough to really summon some like pity for Maxim on that one. Hey, Tim, how, how willing are you to lean into the anti-Maxim case and we can let Heidi take the pro-Maxim case and I just sit back for a while? I'm all for it. Okay. I'm all for it. And I think it might be fun. I, yeah, it might be fun. Okay. Because I'm not is that's a, that's the, a, for me, that was the worst Maxim moment. That was when, that was like, I actually have great sympathy for him. Like, you know, he's married to this woman who turned out to be. Terrible. Just, yeah. She was awful. And, okay. A psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Clinical term, psychopath. Yeah. So, okay. Let's look at it this way. 
we got team Maxim team. When we say if you're not team Maxim, is it just who, whose team are you then? Well, like that's one of the questions I was thinking about. On the about. Facebook page, someone claimed to be team sanity. Now I feel like there's a judgment in that. <laughs> what so, makes you feel that way? Well, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I will gladly wear the t-shirt for team sanity. Team sanity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, when we say we're, if you're not team, I mean, you're not, no one's saying that you're team like Rebecca. No. Right. right. Like if you're not team yeah. Maxim, you're not That's team not Rebecca. Right. Does it to be team unnamed narrator? Plamanda or whatever. Team, no, because Plamanda is on Team Maxim. She is no, okay, but 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 so so then to you, not be team. Go ahead. Could you be Team Plamanda even though she's Team Maxim? No, but that's going to be your case. <laughs> I think that's going to be my case. Okay. That's, no, that's the case that I would make. I want to be Team Plamanda. <laughs> come on, come on. All of us have like friends who have been in bad relationships, and they are for the person. You know, let's just say, like, I've got a friend, John, who's dating, I don't know what her name is, Trisha. No <laughs> offense to any Trishas out there. But let's say that John's really into Trisha, and Trisha is a very unhealthy person. I can be for, I can be on Team John, even though John is on Team Trisha. We are not calling okay. it Team Plamanda. There is just as much a judgment in calling it that as calling it Team Sanity. <laughs> okay, this is what I want to do then. Yeah, Heidi, you have to make the case for Team Maxim. And what we're going to do is we're just, instead of doing it one team or the other, we'll just do it courtroom style. I'm the judge and the jury and the executioner. Ooh, Heidi, nice. is, Heidi, you are, you are the, uh, the lawyer for the defendant, Maxim. Tim, you're the prosecutor and you have to bring the case against Maxim here. And in the end, I will decide what happens to him. Okay. I, I mean, it. there's, I don't love in, it. But, in other words, because I already know how him. David feels about Gothic literature, no, but don't. I accept the terms of this. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Heidi. No, I don't go first. No, Prosecutors Tim, go I'll first. go first. So, so Tim, you have a minute or two here to just lay out your thesis, your, your, your prosecutorial thesis against Maxim. Now, what I don't want what we're not doing is deciding, I will decide whether or not he gets executed or stricken from the literary record or whatever I decide to do whenever the moment comes and how, according to however I feel in the moment. But we've got to decide exactly what it is. What's the question here? Is it just a matter of like, he's a bad guy or like we got to figure out exactly what exactly are you prosecuting? What charges are you bringing against him, Mr. I, Prosecutor? Maybe this, I... Tell me, Heidi, if you think this works. I'm going to argue that the weight of pity should be given to the unnamed narrator and the weight of pity should not be given to Maxim, though he does have things that are worthy of our pity, of our um, like emotional consolation. You know, I can really feel for the guy who got into this situation with his wife that, and she turned out to be a monster. Absolutely, I can have pity for that. Uh, I'm already kind of making my case. Maybe I should just start making my case. So the, well, hold on. So the, so the question here, how do, mm -hmm. how do you see the question? Your team yeah. maxim, so obviously you're defending so him against something. Here's the thing that makes it complicated. I totally agree with what Tim just said, completely. I don't have pity necessarily for Maxim. 
nor do I think that his actions were justified. I just think he's sexy. I think that's your case. Like, that's the strongest case to make. Within okay. the bounds, of, we're, we're always talking about the bounds of the book, the imaginative bounds of the world. Yeah, so what are like, the terms of the book? Yeah. And so is the question then ultimately whether or not Plamanda should be so in, with him? Right. I think some, I think yes, because here's, in some ways me saying I'm team Maxim is me saying I am team terms of Gothic literary heroes. Mm-hmm. 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 Like, and, and so, and I, I am, I look at the Gothic tradition and the kind of tormented, you know, inner darkness, hero, broody. And I, I think that, I, I think that is an attractive literary leading man. Okay. And that is the terms of Gothic literature. This is why I'm T Maxim is I'm saying, Let's just well let's just hold on. The terms Don't of the make book. your case now. Yeah. Don't make your case now. Okay. Let's do this. Let's say that the that the question is whether she, Plamanda should be with him. Like, like, you know, you had this question, Tim. Who's the guy that she's with at the end? Or at the yeah. beginning? Right. So then let's let's put that question out there. That's a great question. And let's yeah, I like let's that. say let's say which choice should she make based on the option that she's given? Great. Heidi's team. Team Maxim is sexy. You are team Plamandic has better options, should make a different choice for her life. You now have the floor, Mr. Prosecutor, to bring the case forward that Plamanda should can we call her something else, please? Should make the case, should should choose a different life partner. Great. With, I'm whom, ready. To, with whom to build a home. May it please the court. Resolved. Plamanda ought not remain with Maxim after the conclusion of the narrative of the novel, Rebecca. Ladies and gentlemen of the court, let's begin with the man who's being prosecuted, Maxim. Everyone in this court can sympathize with a man who married, hoping to find true love, believing in true love, truly loving his wife and having it be revealed through her own gradual unmasking, that he had married a psychopath, a psychopath who is not only willing to break the marriage vows and get together with many different men outside of the marriage, but also seemed intent wholly, not just on her own satisfaction, but on his destruction, on his destruction. All of us can have great sympathy for Maxim, for the potential loss of reputation, for the potential loss of affection, for the potential loss of his great love, the manor Manderley. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, is it worth the taking of life to correct that wrong? Especially when there are alternatives, namely, Hostile separation, divorce. Yet, Maxim de Winter chooses not to face public ridicule by dissolving the marriage or the rumor mongering associated with just a separation from his monster wife. No, he foregoes both of those alternatives and chooses 
murder. He murders his wife. He covers it up. And then on top of that, he marries a young woman without ever informing her of the backstory of his past relationship, a loveless marriage. Well, arguably a loveless marriage. Maybe there was some sort of love in it, but it was never a happy marriage. And does not until he is about to be caught until he is like in like the jaws of the legal system. Only then does he reveal to his wife that yes, he is a wife murderer. That's who he is. That's what he's been hiding from him all along. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I urge you to recommend to Plamanda that she not remain with Maxim, that she leave him, not just for her own sake, but for the sake of humanity, leave him and join in holy matrimony with Frank. I rest my case. Well, you, you, know, you rested the case. That's, that's it. That's just the opening. What else statement. do I need? What else? Oh, oh like we're going to go into kind of like evidence, like forensic evidence. I mean, now? I got my, I got my gavel. <laughs> I want I want some like, tape I want to have some objections. I want to have, yeah, it's a, it's a scotch tape dispenser with a safety guard on it. Um, <laughs> I do have children. It. We got to have, we got to have cross-examination. We got to maybe have some witnesses. I'm all for cross-examination. Okay, I think well, that like Heidi and I can like cross-examine each other. That could be, I think that would be really Maybe fruitful. we should even bring, I don't know, Plamanda or Maxim DeWinter to the stand. Uh, Madam defense attorney, what do you call him? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I've spent a long time since I've watched Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, defend your person. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so ladies and Opening gentlemen statements. of the jury, gentleman of the jury. So the terms of this novel are important to this question. This is an interpretive question that ought to take place within the world of the novel and not within our own kind of moral standards, I guess. Uh, and I really am arguing that. I really am saying you have to suspend a certain amount of disbelief. Mr. Prosecutor, please do not laugh at the... At no, your, I'm, yes. Your Honor, I'm so Thank sorry. You. Thank you. Your Honor, I'm you, sorry. Really, with any kind of genre novel, you do have to, to suspend some disbelief when you're heading into understanding the terms of a novel. The same way that you can say, I think that Sheriff so-and-so should shoot this man in cold blood in the streets because he's harassing some Spanish maiden in the saloon. Then you can say the same way we do that and we root for him. We're also then rooting for this, like the hero that we're given in the novel. And the hero that we're given in the novel has these deep internal flaws. We know that. Any Gothic novel is going to present to us a hero with kind of a broody, melancholy nature who has some kind of dark secret. So that's the terms of a Gothic hero, right? Along with that, we have the larger contemplation of the novel, which is the complexity of when human justice encounters human love, and that's the big question that we have at the end of the novel. Am I going to support the fact that this man gets off freely or does he, right? And the only way to really fully enter into that question that is really complex, and even though it's a genre novel, it does give us this very deep question. And the only way to really enter into that is to accept the terms of the novel, which is this. There are two big problems with our heroine, the central character. Number one, can she move from childish bride 
to fully realized adult woman wife, right? And number two, what do we do with the ex? What do we do with Rebecca, who's the big problem of the novel, right? And in order to really enter into this as any kind of satisfying conclusion, we have to accept the terms that she gives us, which is meaning our, our narrator. And the terms that she gives us are, I think that my husband is obsessed and still in love with his ex-wife, right? with, with his dead wife. I think that. And because I think that, I'm remaining a childish bride instead of a full, fully equal wife and partner in this marriage. So, Pomanda herself, our unnamed narrator, she has this internal problem and it is caused and manifested in her obsession with Rebecca. So the only way to really deal with that problem in a satisfying way in the novel is that you have to make Rebecca, you have to change our perception of Rebecca. And that's what happens in this section and 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 before. So the first half of the novel, we think Rebecca is good and that the narrator isn't good enough. So with now that we have Rebecca gone, and she's bad. It turns out she's, she's bad. And then that resolves the problem of the novel, which is Maxim does indeed love the narrator. And that's repeated over and over and over again in the second half of the novel. He really loves her. He's passionate about her. And so we don't have a loveless marriage at all. We have a passionate love in this marriage that's divided. These two people are divided from each other by a deep misunderstanding. And then they're brought back together. And that is that resolves the problem. And then we have the movement that resolves that problem. And then we have the movement from childish bride to fully realized wife. And that takes place by her defending Maxim and forgiving Maxim and leaning into this love, which is the terms of the novel. So in every way, it is a satisfying conclusion. And the only way that we can get there is if we have to suspend some amount of disbelief and enter into the terms of the love that's given us in the novel. And that is Team Maxim. And that's my case. Strong. <laughs> Mr. McKintish, would you like to cross-examine Miss Whitecap? Okay. My main question is, let's say that I accept the bounds of the novel. Or do you have any witnesses? <laughs> I have no witnesses. Let's imagine that I accept the bounds of the novel, the imaginative world. And I think I would be inconsistent as a close reader to suddenly break with like kind of I, my I, own hermeneutic. I, and I believe that as the judge here, it is my right to insist that that term be accepted for the sake of this conversation. Wait, wait, <laughs> what term be accepted? You have to accept the terms of the I, novel. And I accept to, the terms well, of the novel. So right. I'm just dictating it because I want something to do. Go ahead. Um, Good job. You're doing great, David. When I think Thanks. about their life going forward, right? He's off the hook. She's off the hook. Mandalay is burned down and with it so presumably is Mrs. Danvers, at least her memory, you know, they just have no more association with her. Rebecca also is kind of effaced from the novel. Can this couple remain happy? Can they have, can they, like, can, they, can this like long hampered love now spring forth and grow? And I say, no. No, it is built on like the oldest crime, a murder. And these two might like really remain like committed to each other. But the whole time, 
isn't Plamanda going to be thinking in five years, in 10 years, but it's all built on a murder. I would never know him if it wasn't for the murder. I would never have been with him if not for a murder. I would not be like all of these, like everything about my life is all contingent upon this man having murdered his ex-wife. Judge David, may I respond? I just thought we should sit in silence for a few minutes. Of course, (laughs) you have the floor. Thank you. So I totally agree, completely agree. And I think that the novel resolves this satisfactorily. So here's what would be an unsatisfactory ending and would actually make me not Team Maxim is if they come back into Manderley Manderley's exactly as it was before, and they enter into Manderley and have a perfect life, and that just ends with happily ever after. I got away with murder, and now I just pick up right where I left off, and everything's fine. But that's not what the novel gives us. What Maxim claims to our to our unnamed narrator in their conversation that they have in chapter twenty one is, "I did it all for Manderley." I, I mm. gave, I allowed her to live her psychopathic double life because I cared more about my house than I did about my happiness. And he says, I was wrong. What kind of a person does that? He acknowledges that that was the wrong thing to do. He doesn't really express any remorse or repentance for killing Rebecca. He never does. He expresses remorse and repentance for allowing their marriage to be a sham for the sake of the house. And guess what's taken from him in the end? Manderley. And then they move, they move away. He does indeed get let off the hook in a legal sense, but I do not believe that he doesn't pay consequences. I think the rest of their life is exactly what you just said. It's an empty shell of a life. They go live in some like random small hotel. They don't have any money anymore because he can't live off his estate, right? And they don't have any children, which is mentioned several times he wants her to have children and she doesn't, right? So everything that he loves except for her is taken from him. And then she and he go off into this like empty shell of a life in which the best that they ever have is really kind of this, uh, at least we have each other. And I think that's justice. I think it probably would have been better if he had gone to prison, but I think that's the complexity of the novel. I think that's exactly what the novel is saying, is that you don't actually ever get away with it. Rebecca still is haunting the end of the novel, and he loses everything he loves except for her, except for Plamanda, and then she indeed loses everything really as well. And all they have is each other. And the question of the novel is, is that enough? And I, I think that the novel leaves us hanging on that and gives us a version of justice that makes then it's satisfactory enough for us to be able to enter into this and say, was justice truly done? Uh, at least there's some kind of consequence paid here. And I think there is deep, deep, deep consequence paid. Your Honor, can I ask a question of the defense attorney? You may. Um, Do you think that the justice that you just described, no, let me ask it a different way. If Plamanda had married Frank, would the book 
Because I think you're right. When I think about like the concluding evidences or the chapter one evidences that she stayed with Max, I think you're right. She probably does end up staying with Max and they both kind of like reap the reward of the bloodshed that Max committed. Um, so part of your argument is that the justice of the novel occurs after the conclusion of the novel. Max has to kind of like suffer this life that he chose. And it's not a life that anybody really wants. That's, that's kind of part of your argument that they kind of get, he gets justice in a way served to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I guess my question then is, but why does she have to suffer that same justice when she's done nothing wrong? I think that that's where you have to accept the terms of their love. I think what they're saying is the question of the novel is what do I do when with the complexity of justice and human, human justice and human love, Mm -hmm. these things come together and they create this very, very complex dilemma for everybody in the novel. Right. And I think what we have at the end is a fully human, fully realized adult narrator who has gone from child to woman and she still chooses him (coughs) in spite of the fact that he has failed so deeply and she has every right to walk away, which is why I say Team Maxim is the only way to really understand this novel. A follow-up question. Would the novel not work better if they had divorced, she had married Frank, and we learned something about Max's fate, you know, that he is alone without Manderley, without his second wife, and he's reaping the consequences. And yet our narrator is, I understand the kind of, um, the bond of the romantic love that she feels for him. But it seems to me like part of her maturation should be, and I'm going to cut even that, that vibrant romantic love that I feel for him. Part of my maturation is ending that because I am not choosing a miserable life for myself. I'm not choosing to take on his punishment. Right. And I would say it comes to the same thing though, Tim. My, my argument is that the way even to understand that is a viable option is to accept the terms of their love as real. I see. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to get in there and understand that what they have is a real love. And then, mm-hmm. be, and then at that point, you make a judgment on whether she made mm-hmm. the right decision. Should she have fought for him? Should she not have then uh, held him accountable to human justice? Right? And, 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 and said, no, honey, you've got to go to jail. You've got to go to prison for this because I love you. Right? So, but the point that I'm making is that to just this as like some kind of adolescent fantasy melodramatic love that isn't real and and ought not to cost her something is the wrong attitude to take in reading this book. I find that a compelling case. Uh, I'd like to conclude my argument now, Your Honor. By all means. Having heard both my own case and the defense attorney's case, I have softened toward the defense attorney's case. So you will not be going for the death penalty. So I will not be going, I will not be recommending the death penalty. However, I are remain. Coming, are we going to have a settlement? <laughs> I remain team sanity. 
and encourage our listeners to prosecute Maxim to the fullest extent of the law, yet stopping short of the death penalty. I rest my case. Well, and I will add as well, as long as with your honor's permission, that... Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I think once you accept the terms of their love and not, not in a dismissive, like whatever kind of manner. And in this, I mean, we're talking about this on Romeo and Juliet too, Tim, mm-hmm. as we record mm-hmm. this same question. If you do not accept Romeo and Juliet's love as real, you miss the whole story. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what it's I'm a saying childish here. fantasy. Yes. Sort they're just of love. two adolescent yeah. kids who just killed himself for nothing. What a stupid story. Right. Yeah. But that's not what Shakespeare is giving us. And I think I'm saying the same thing about Daphne du Maurier and that I, I always want to get everything out of a book that I can. Right? And so if that means suspending my disbelief and saying in real life, I, what would I do about Maxim is totally different than my investment right. in the terms yeah. of this story. And, and I think if you accept the terms of the story and still say, I think she did it wrong, she should have held him accountable. She should have all of the, right? These things are fully, she still is under his spell. Like if you accept the terms of their love and still want to cast judgment on Maxim, I think that's valid to your point. Maybe it should have gone to jail. That would have been better, right? That, that would have been more redeeming to their life. That would have been more honoring of their love. I think that there's, a, that's a different question than just dismissing it and saying, this is stupid. I don't like him. He committed murder, whatever, bye. Oh, whatever, bye. I, I think oh, you're, I think you're tapping into okay. what, so now I guess we're just kind of like getting into kind of like the aftermath, you know, mm-hmm. after the court case. I, I think that's for me, the thing that I can't accept on the novel's own terms is I don't think I can't see how she loves him. But I, and I don't mean like after finding out that he's a murderer. Like the whole novel is this, is him thwarting her attempts to love him. So he's like cold to her from the very beginning. She like, So just to be clear, you do like the book. I love the book. But- you so is this a criticism you just of Daphne? Don't find that him attractive. Is it a criticism of the book that you don't understand how she would love him, or a criticism of the character? It's a good question. It's a it's a criticism of Max. Okay, Heidi's point, and I think it's really this. This honestly, like the strength of the defense's case is that you have to accept the love of this couple. And she used the analogy of Romeo and Juliet. The trouble with Romeo and Juliet is I believe that they love each other because I see how they treat each other. I see how they speak to each other. I see the obstacles they have to come to be with each other. And I'm like, I buy it. These might be like young people, but what they have is earnest and true and real. And like, they could make it. They could make 50 years together and like, be rock solid. But I look at like what evidences we have of affection from Max to her. And I just don't see it. I just don't see it. So it looks like a piece of furniture in his house. Okay. I want to ask you how you see 
his affection to her being displayed throughout the book. While you think about that, I want to read the first paragraph of, <coughs> excuse me, it's dusty in this basement, in this dungeon. Uh, Max, <laughs> Max is in the other cell. Um, I'm, I'm watching over. So I want to read the first paragraph of chapter five, where she's talking about her love. And then I want to, this, to me, this is the biggest, you might not criticize the book for this. This is something I have trouble with. I don't want to criticize Daphne de Maurier. She knows more about writing than I will ever know. But it's something that I have a problem understanding is why does she love him? I'm with you there, Tim. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is what she says at the beginning of chapter five. And then Heidi, I'll let, we'll let you respond to what Tim says. And then maybe this, what this passage says, this might shine some light on that. She says, I'm glad it cannot happen twice. The fever of first love. For it is a fever and a burden too, whatever the poets may say. They are not brave, the days when we are 21. They are full of little cowardices, little fears without foundation. And one is so easily bruised, so swiftly wounded, one falls to the first barbed word. Today, wrapped in the complacent armor of approaching middle age, the infinitesimal pricks of day by day brush one lightly but are soon and are soon forgotten. But then, how a careless word would linger becoming a fiery stigma and how a look, a glance over a shoulder branded themselves as things eternal. A denial heralded the thrice crowing of a cock and an insincerity was like the kiss of Judas. The adult mind can't, can lie with untroubled conscience and a gay composure. But in those days, even a small deception scoured the tongue, lashing one against the stake itself. So she says that and then she goes into a conversation where... It's, uh, I believe, Mrs. Van Hopper, who's, this is, this is before she's moved. So she gives us that about the nature of being in love when you're young. And that's one of those passages that makes me sort of be on your side, Tim. Mm. That, that there is even, we've talked a lot about how she's immature. There's, a, there's an immaturity in her character that also seems to come through in her affection for him. And so that's the only answer that I could come up with that answers the question that you're asking that I'm asking with you, Tim. So Heidi, is that enough? Is it enough to say this is an immature person who is under the spell of a rich, beautiful man who has that, you know, gothic sexiness and her affection for him, her love for him is just immature. Is, is that enough? Is that, is that all it needs to be to answer the question that we both have? Or do you have something better? Well, I don't think that that's enough to answer the question to your point. I think that I'd be really curious to have the same conversation with another woman who doesn't find Maxim attractive. Like okay, that Tim, kind of like you're going to be melancholy. Sarah, the other woman who does not find Maxim attractive. And the reason why is because I have some of the same problems with genre novels that are oriented towards men that have what I think is a pretty shallow female lead, right? And I'm like, what do you, like, what do you see in her, right? Or alternatively, I have that same kind of thing for like a, um, like a really helpless kind of heroine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I just think, why do guys, why are they in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? I know, like, honestly. And, and so- Heidi, I know exactly what you're saying. I think that some of this is- so that's why I'm saying I'd love to have the same kind of conversation with some of our, with one or more of our listeners who just like don't get Maxim, who like don't think he's that gothic hero is sexy, who are like, I never liked Mr. Rochester either. I was, I'm just not into that. So I think that that is a question I can't answer necessarily other than like, 
I, I'm totally into that. So. Well, but what, no, I know, but what, so I'm fine with right. that. I buy that. But what is there in the book that shows why she is in love with him? Well, because she's like a young ingenue it, and he's like, has this compelling presence he had that, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's that. Like she's she's drawn to his perceived her perception of his confidence, his uh, his success, um, the fact that he sits down and asks her questions right there. She never talks about herself, and he has her sit down. Like he sees something in her. At and in the beginning of the novel, when they first meet, he he calls her over and you know gives her this like really good food, and he has this special place in the restaurant, and everyone's ever he's he's well known there. And then he, who has all this attention and is handsome and older and rich, Stone is like, tell me about yourself. And she finds herself confiding in him and he's asking her questions and he's taking her out to see the world. And, um, and he treats her as an equal, even though in her mind, she's, he's so far above her like that. That's why. And, um, and then when he brings her to his home, he kind of disappears behind his guilt, but she doesn't see it that way. And then when they have this conversation uh, in, is it chapter? Yeah. Chapter 20, they, they actually finally talk about this. And he says, or she says, um, why didn't you tell me the time? This is page 274, the very, very bottom going on to 275. Why didn't you tell me the time we've wasted when we might've been together all these weeks and days? And he responds to her, you were so aloof always wandering into the garden with Jasper, going off on your own. You never came to me like this. Uh, and you don't like this part, Tim, but I do. I like this part a lot because they're finally talking right. about their relationship. Right. And he is not just a murderer here, in my opinion. He's like a person who's like, mm. I, I didn't think you were into me. Mm. And, and I love um, how they don't answer each other's questions in this section, by the yeah. way. And she says, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? And he says, I thought you were unhappy, bored. I'm so much older than you. You seem to have more to say to Frank than you ever had to me. You were funny with me, awkward and shy, right? So he has interpreted this a completely different way. And now she is waking up to how they've missed each other, which frankly is just like everybody's marriage. Like we, we all think these things about each other in marriage. You're acting this way because you're mad at me or whatever. And, and, and this is, in some ways, this is just a huge caricature of what it's like in early marriage. Mm. And mm. they've had this honeymoon and then they come back to their home and then they finally have to, they have to know each other. They have to get to know each other and forgive each other through a great crisis. And of course, here we have the crisis of I murdered my other wife. So that, again, <laughs> it's a caricature. That is definitely a great yes. crisis. <laughs> um <clears throat> So, well, anyway. that takes, let's go back to the, go ahead. Go can, ahead I, can I, I was thinking, Heidi, I'm going I'm to try to like make your case because th- it's becoming more, more clear to me. I'm going to use a terrible example, but did you, do you guys remember that show Alias starring Jennifer Garner? Yeah, yeah. that was a great Way show. Way back in the day. Okay. It's a great show, but Jennifer Garner is like a, a hot double agent for the CIA, you know? And Jennifer Garner with her long flowing brown hair and, you know, she works out eight hours a day and, you know, she always manages like, they put her in these suits that, you know, make her look great. It's a complete masculine fantasy. She is, right? And like 
maybe some women could like see her and say, oh man, what a cool life. What a great life. But like, it's just playing to like this masculine fantasy that, yeah, man, I really want to be with the hot CIA double agent whose hair always looks perfect, even after she like crawls through a ditch with an AK-47 strapped to her back, you know, somehow. So if, if my, how do I say this? Like, if I said to Heidi, you know what I, who I'm really looking for in life? I'm looking for someone like Jennifer Garner Jennifer and Garner. Alias. You would say, hey, I would roll Tim. my eyes. You would roll your yes. eyes, or if you were, or you'd probably say something like, "Hey Tim, like, grow up. Like, this is like, come on. Like, this is just not even realistic." But that's part of the reason that that whole show works. And so maybe this is not the strongest analogy, but I think that's this is what you're kind of saying. This is exactly what makes it's a great what makes Rebecca work is because. Maxim is tapping into this female fantasy about yes. kind of like the distance of masculinity, but finally willing to share his like, you know, like the, the, the secret that he's been guarding that he's shared with nobody else. He shares it with her. Oh my God. Right. He shares it with her. This is what we want. Yes. And he's okay. loved me okay. and desired yeah. me all along. The and I whole just time. It. Yes. It's totally a female fantasy. Then, then it's created. It, it actually becomes then I think a compelling novel, but to your point here, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And every, just like every guy knows they're not going to marry Jennifer Garner. I'm, yeah. I'm not going Except around looking for some, right. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, but he then, didn't marry alias. Yeah. He just married Jennifer he didn't Garner. Marry alias. He married Jennifer married Garner. Yeah, commercial right? version. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's, so that same way I'm not going around looking for like, a life partner who's committed murder. Like, so what but I'm saying is like, this of book the was so world. fun. Yes. And, and I, I think it takes the fun away to just say like, well, that's team max. Yeah. is Stupid. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Oh, I know it's stupid. I just, I, I liked it. That was a page turner. I really like, liked the novel and yeah, I like broody guys. <laughs> so, I'm going to own it. I like broody guys. Yeah. Eat the cheese, drink the wine, read the book. I That's like right. Guys. But so I just, also accept there's there? plenty of, no, there's plenty of women who are like, <laughs> I don't. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's fair too. We don't have to make it all deep, but like, so <laughs> either, either way. We just had like a whole court guys, case making it deep. Don't, that's right. Well, that's the show. So. Yeah, and you I know, stand by it because every I episode think this should be is a, a good case. novel. This is I think we're it's not a doing really, this for really good novel. novel. Yeah, no, right. not at okay, all. So then let's let's yeah. spend the rest of the episode, if you don't mind, talking about a couple of things that make this more than just the enjoyable dime store pulp novel. What mm -hmm. are a couple examples of things that push it to the next level? So here's what I'm thinking. Why don't you each point out two things that you think elevates it to that? And we'll kind of zigzag. We'll go back and forth between you. And if the other person says one, you can't say it. So Tim, you get to go first. What do you think is something that elevates, just because I feel like we've given Heidi the victory in the court case. Yeah. <laughs> um, the psychological realism, I think for me is number one. Um, so I, I'll use Tom Clancy as, you know, like a bounce off. Like I think I love Tom Clancy's novels. They're fun page turns. But when I read them, I know what I'm reading is a genre piece of literature 
and it's going to be an enjoyable page turner. And when I put it down, it's not going to cross my mind again. It's just, and that's to me like the big difference. That's like kind of like the dividing line between like a piece of real literature and a page turner that's meant primary for the pleasure of a tale well told is that whether or not I think about it and persist on thinking about it when I put it down. And I persisted in thinking about Rebecca when I put it down. And number one for me is the psychological realism, especially of our narrator, her observations, what she does not see, um, what she does see, how she feels. I thought that that was handled by Daphne du Maurier with great dexterity. I would have used this moment to be annoying because I got a lot of flack among certain segment of people for, I'm just going to say, being right. How so? <laughs> because she is unreliable. Like that's oh, the whole I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. Like this is good, but this is going to derail the conversation, David, because well, okay, I we'll do come back not agree it. with you. I do not agree that she's an unreliable. Maybe it's just a matter of terms then. I think we'll it come, is a matter of term. We'll come back to it. Okay. So, We'll argue about whether I was right. Well, I came out Heidi, big. I sorry, you, David. I came out really big with that. I was like, "Oh you yeah, did. I got a to pick with you." You did, and since I'm the judge in the scenario, it's going <laughs> to work out already better lost. for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Heidi. What do you? What is one thing for you that elevates it above just the pulp? I have several. My first one is the complexity of the contemplation of justice. And love. I mean, I've said that a couple times. I, I think that that uh, the kind of the, the the conflict of competing virtues. Boom! There Do it is. Do you want to say anything else? The conflict no. of. I mean, I guess you've been virtues. saying that. Yeah. Okay. How about you, David? Tim. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. No. David Kern's turn. Why I think it something that elevates mm-hmm. it. He's going to say something about form right now, or writing. He's going to say something about form. He's going to say something about form. <laughs> I, he doesn't. I was say, he doesn't love. I was going to say J- Jasper. Jasper elevates it. Yeah, that no, the, do- the little dog pass. elevates it. Defends that. Because at the beginning, at the beginning, the dog is dead, and at the end, the dog is alive. That's all. David, are you taking this assignment seriously? <laughs> that was so perfect, Heidi. Like just the faint, like just the the faintest hint of exasperation. <laughs> The looks, the tone, the, the teacherly <laughs> tone. Like I'm going to respect you as an individual and as a man. Conditional positive I, regard. I, I'm, I'm going to. I have a conviction about unconditional positive regard, but you are testing <laughs> that conviction right now. Uh, uh, <laughs> the faces, the faces were the made it worth it. <laughs> I do think that I was being facetious with the dog part, but. The way that the beginning offers questions that you sort of forget about, but then come back at the end, that you have to read the beginning to resolve. This structurally, that's more complex. <coughs> Excuse me. Like I said, it's dusty down here. Is that's more complex, yeah, formally than you get out of a lot of the the pulp genre novels. Even ones that like to use a sort of prologue that's way in the future and then it, you know it's got the structure of the memory novel it does more than just introduce the themes and the plot it's there there's things between the lines there's questions being asked between the lines that you can't resolve how the book ends without going back to them and so if you want to call that formal or structural or whatever i do think that elevates it above 
above just the regular, you know, pulp novel. Okay, Tim, you talk. I've got to go mute myself and cough for a while. Uh, my second kind of criteria for for classifying this as a piece of literature and not just a page turner is the quality of the prose. I think the prose is so good. I think it really shines when she turns her eyes toward nature. Like the opening chapter, I think is just really beautiful. But I think she also has a great ability with dialogue. I felt like the dialogue was compelling, believable. It showed variation within different characters. So for me, that's the second one, quality of the prose. Heidi, while I continue to buy time for David, clearing his throat, it's dusty there. What is, is your other, uh, your second criteria? Uh, mine is the pacing. I think mm. she is masterful at uh, the the exact amount of suspense the transitions, like the telephone ringing at the end of chapter 20 is like perfect. It's almost like you hear it, right? Which they're having this really intense conversation. And then all of a sudden the telephone rings and you're almost like jumping as you're reading. And just the pacing of the suspense uh, and the catharsis multiple times in the novel, I think is masterful. Mm. The footsteps... Um, below the balcony, when there are the explosions out at the sea, you're like, whose footsteps? Where are we going next? Another great example. That Maybe pacing is not the right word for that, but it really forces you, it, it captures you and leads you forward, which, you know, is a habit of well-done genre novels, you know, like Tom Clancy usually ends his chapter with a cliffhanger. But I think I really love books that can do both because- What's to keep you, author, to like plant those little seeds that make us want to know what happens next? Well, yeah, to your point, there's nothing I love more other than my children, my wife, a really good bottle of wine and the Green Bay Packers than a genre novel that does that, that does both of those things. Like I appreciate a lot of great literature and I love many like truly great, you know, the novels that are like the canon, but where my, the things that I love to read the most, you know, that where my, where like it's true affection reading rather than study reading, if that makes sense. And I don't even use that in a derogatory term. Like I, I love the study of literature, mm. but when I want to read something that I just want to read, it's the literary genre novel. Like those are the ones that remind me why I love books the most. And I think this is, you know, I, while I don't love this book in the way that I love A Lonesome Dove or The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or, you know, other books that kind of fall into literary genre fiction, this has so many of the hallmarks of that. And it's just that I don't have a huge affection for the, I respect the Gothic tradition, don't have a lot of affection personally for it. So I didn't like fall in love with this book, but what you're saying is true. And I think it's one of the reasons that certain books, we all fall in love. I think what I'm describing is what all, everybody who loves to read really loves. Like when you truly love to read and you celebrate books and you're constantly giving them to people, it's the genre fiction that, that is literary because it's got the trappings of the genre, the trimmings of the genre, I think maybe is a better word. And it's got the skill of the literary mm -hmm. and like, what's better than getting lost in a novel that has both of those things. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's just, it's like drinking a great bottle of wine or watching this Super Bowl when your teams play. I mean, it's just you get lost in it, right? You get you get caught up in it in a way that you don't necessarily when you're studying. And like I said, I love studying great literature, 
but you don't always get lost in it in the same way as the books, the genre books that you truly have affection for that just kind of carry you away into another, yeah. to another place. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that one of the things that I'll, something that elevates it for me, that is, it's an example of what you're talking about is the scene that goes on forever. I, and maybe it's the chapter 20 is part of it. It's basically the, the scene with the detective where it becomes a little investigative, you know, where Favel is making his case and he's calling in his witnesses and you've got the magistrate there or whatever his role is. And she's experiencing it as if she's in the courtroom and you've got Max is a little aloof and you've got Frank is worried. And the way that whole, that whole thing plays out, it's got the pacing Heidi's talking about. It's got the genre stuff. It feels as good as any investigative Poirot scene in a, you're wrapping up an Agatha Christie novel. But then after that, we get like the coda after all that investigation happens. Yeah. So she, yeah. she takes the, the sort of genre element of the detective who has to unravel the clues. And then she puts the, with, with all the drama of that and all the tension. And then she adds the coda at the end, which makes it literary. And, and I think that's, that's really skillful. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it get, has gotten made into multiple movies, because it's got the psychological depth, but also those mm-hmm. trimmings that you're talking about. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just rambled for, for, a little, for a long time. I need to go cough again, probably. Hey, we should do a bonus episode about um, both the movies. You mentioned it up top. Yeah. I just thought I'd mention it again. Have... Maybe we could do a bonus episode. Heidi, what do you think? Movies. Should we do that or should we... Like Tim came up with the idea, so maybe it's like flawed, but <laughs> I, I, I think that Tim is on to something. You think Tim McIntosh, the one who came up with that idea? Yeah, is on T- to Tim McIntosh. Tim McIntosh, the one who came up with that idea. <laughs> Tim McIntosh. Tim McIntosh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> okay, so Heidi, do you have one more one more liter- thing that elevates it, or did you? She do did your, both first. I I mean the characters. Right, they're all un- those three. Those that that triangle of characters with Maxim and our unnamed narrator and Mrs. Danvers, and even Rebecca herself, who does who's dead the whole time, are like they're incredible characters, unforgettable. And no one's ever going to forget them. I had a question. Maybe we can talk about that. Maybe this this might be better for the Q and A because I'm sure we're got to be wrapping up soon. Yeah, we're getting there. Can you think of another book? whose Lots main character doesn't have a line of dialogue anywhere in the book. Nope. I couldn't think of any. And yet she's a real character. I mean, I mean. Yeah. And she's not even a ghost. Like she's just dead. Yeah. yeah. And she haunts. I use that word intentionally. Right. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah, and she's unforgettable either way. And I think that so in the first half of the novel, we have her as the perfect wife, and in the second half of the novel, we have her as like the worst wife ever, right? The diabolical wife. So she's both idealized and demonized in the same book, and both of them make her unforgettable. Mm. That's brilliant. That's a really interesting question, though. The characters that don't speak, yeah, that's a great question. Maybe that's a question for the Facebook page. And finally, we get to like ask our listeners a question. Name another book whose central character or title character doesn't get a single line of dialogue. I guess Moby Dick. <laughs> what about, isn't there a Faulkner novel? What one of the characters just <laughs> like... <laughs> That's um, such a great answer <laughs> and true and a true and answer. You know, in a way, as I lay dying, in a, that it, gives what you mean. Yeah. Yes. Yes. In a way, though, that's interesting that you mentioned that because Rebecca and and 
No, Moby Dick are kind of similar in terms of their their role in the story in a way. That's true. Boy, that's oh, really, that that's is true. really good. Somebody, oh. somebody, write something about this. No, never mind. Well, well, yeah, I guess you get like, I mean, you have like animal stories, but that doesn't count. A la Moby Dick. I, I don't think it really. No, but counts. I mean, like, it like it's not what I or something. I know it. You right, mean right, right, right. But those don't yeah. count. I That's think not what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Charlotte's Web does the. Do they all do they all speak in Charlotte's Web. I think they do. They do. Mm-hmm. Some pig. Mm, that's true. We should do Charlotte's Web on the show. Um, well, we're at an hour and twenty minutes here. So, what do we need to cover before we wrap it up and then go to the Q and A? <clears throat> it might be worth touching on the very beginning of chapter two, because I think it maybe has some answers to some of the questions Tim was asking beginning about whatever like who does she end up with because is that something we should talk about now or should we save that for the q a okay so you guys didn't talk about the unreliable narrator question let's save that she's definitely with maxim um yeah i think and yeah Uh, but i think you guys should have your unreliable narrator smackdown just real quick right now okay or or, or next week heidi She's like, like, what do you mean? Like tomorrow? I say now. <laughs> sure, we can talk about it. I mean, Tim, you, you came, you did, you came out real aggressive. Like you really flared up. You had, it was like, hurtful. The, yeah, it was hurtful. The, what's the, like, is you it a Komodo triggered. dragon that like. Yeah, yeah, I threw my gill wings out. Yeah, right. You really knew that you knew a lot about a Komodo dragon there for a moment. I was mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised by mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But I think, I'm, I'm wondering if it's that we are using the term differently. So, hey, I bet we are. How are so you using the term here? When I hear unreliable narrator, I think most times people mean that the narrator, who is usually speaking in first person like our narrator is, has something to hide or several things to hide from the reader. And so we are almost like a character in the book and the unreliable narrator disguises the truth intentionally from us. Okay. But we are given enough clues within the book that we can decipher that, oh, this person is actually lying to me. That's what I think when I hear unreliable narrator. What do you think, David? So I was hesitant to use the actual term unreliable narrator because it is a specific term and I agree with how you defined it. I wouldn't necessarily call her an unreliable narrator. I just think she's she was unreliable. Like if we're using proper nouns, capital U, capital N, unreliable narrator, I agree with you. I don't think she fits the bill for a literary unreliable narrator. What I was trying to say a couple episodes ago is that when you've only read halfway through the book, as I had, what you're getting is a bunch of clues and you're realizing this person doesn't know what's happening. This person is not seeing the world the way it really is, which leads you to believe that it's possible that she is an unreliable narrator. And I think that Daphne de Maurier is using that. She has created a character who, as Heidi's been explaining to us, is immature and thus sees the world in a way that is not accurate to how the world actually is. For example, she thinks that her husband loves his ex-wife, which she doesn't see the people around her the way they actually are. And so I think Daphne de Maurier is using the possibility of an unreliable narrator, capital U, capital N, to create tension in the book. I don't think that she is an unreliable narrator in that sense. But what I was trying to say then is, this is a character who does not know what's actually happening in the world. And thus, we don't, we shouldn't take her word for what 
what she's saying, not because it is a literary device meant to trick us as readers, but because this is a narrator who is immature. So that's, that's what I was trying yeah. to say. I probably said it poorly and I probably should not have let we us see it the exact the same way though. Okay. We see it the exact same way. Yeah. We're in agreement. I think it's just a difference of term. Yeah. And so I agree. I, and I, I think you're right that she did it on purpose that DeMaurier did that to plant seeds of doubt in us and then resolve it in her own unexpected way. Yeah. Because it was funny. Cause I, we, we, on Facebook, people were like, really taking issue with what I was saying. And now I'm, I'm realizing probably it was because of that we drifted into the use of the unreliable narrator term. But I, I was like, what? How is it possible that, like, she obviously doesn't see the world the way it is. Like, there's just scene after scene, she misreads what's going on around her. And what that does is for us, it leaves us thinking that some people are more sinister than they are, or that the other people don't know what, like, that she's in danger when really she was never actually in danger, but she allows us to think that it's possible. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, man, that was a, that was a, that wasn't much of a smackdown, Heidi. It's probably for the best. Cause we got, I think we yours and my smackdown was way more intense than that. I think it was too. I think it was too. <laughs> I don't really have the courage to do a real smackdown with, with you guys. False. So false. False. Well, we've been going for an hour and 23 minutes and that probably means we should turn to some final thoughts. So we will do final, final thoughts on this book next week when we do the Q&A episode. And then of course, some further final thoughts, some final or final thoughts. When we talk, Finally about, when we talk about the cinematic adaptations of this book. But for this week, what do you want to add to the conversation here at the end? Heidi, you go first. Your coda to this episode. A couple things. One, I, I'm curious what happens to Mrs. Danvers too. Tim mentioned that at the top of the episode. And I'm, I find it intriguing that we just don't know, you know, did she go down with the ship or did, you know, did, did she get away? Is she still a threat? Is this like the Mrs. Danvers, like her malevolent presence throughout the book is, was always leading to some destructive act. Right. And this, I think the burning of Manderley is our, this is our moment of, I didn't know that was coming, but of course that was coming. Yeah. Do you, do you read her as malevolent? Yes, I do. Do you not? That's not, interesting. Not, See, this is why reading in community is so interesting. Not, not now. Like when I look back at her scenes, she seems malevolent because the narrator is terrified of her. And, but really what the narrator, what she is, is obsessed with Rebecca. And she's more. Well, what about a, the setup for the desperate. dress? Well, Did that change no, your opinion? She's male- okay. For the dress? Okay. What do we mean by malevolent? Uh, evil, full of harmful intent. Mm-hmm. I think she's bitter. And I think that she <laughs> is obsessed with Rebecca. And so when someone came in, I think she maybe had evil intent. I think she wanted to get rid of Palmanda. But I don't think, I think she's more pathetic than she is malevolent. Oh, see, this is so interesting because this goes. The movies exactly do her differently, by the, the point. way. This goes exactly to your point that you just made about the small, not, not true literary term, but the unreliable narrator, right? Mm-hmm. Because I took our unnamed narrator, I took Plamanda's descriptions of Mrs. Danvers as malevolent, not pathetic at face value. And you did not. Mm. And I think you could, you can interpret it either way. Like that's both of those things you can defend from the text. I think, but I never even thought of seeing her as pathetic, not malevolent. 
I never even, that never even entered my mind until you said it, but it's a perfectly valid thing to do because there's so many of our narrators impressions that end up being kind of reinterpreted in the story. So it's interesting because the obvious response to what that runs against what I'm saying and with what you're saying is that she burns the ostensibly burns the house down. How can you do something like that if you are not malevolent? So I think that there is a degree to which pathetic people do really destructive things. So she's malevolent (laughs) in the sense that she is unhinged and mourning and obsessed with this person and now believes that believes the truth about how she died. Right. But she also could have done that when they were there. Like, I don't think she's malevolent and evil in the sense that she was going, she was really was going to like, she didn't like try to kill them. So it's like, to me, she seems more pathetic and desperate than she does some kind of villainous character. I think that works. No, she's malevolent because like that was like, she somehow did Maxim and Plamanda a favor by not like by burning the house down when they weren't around. Oh, that's thoughtful. That's a thoughtful thing to do. She's not thoughtful, but put, like I said, pathetic people do super destructive things all the time. I think that I'm very intrigued by what David's bringing up, by the idea of, like, I took everything she said about Mrs. Danvers entirely at face value, that she had like a skeleton face that was like leering and evil. And, and, and she could just be an old grieving woman who did some malicious things like burning their house down. So I still think she's malevolent, but I think that if we allow, if, if we allow that so many of these other things were overstated or misinterpreted on the part of the narrator, then why not Mrs. Danvers? I think it's a fair I question. That, I think she shaded Mrs. Danvers toward malevolence for sure. And she was right. But you know what I mean? Like she, at the beginning of the book, she even says, "I kind of get why Mrs. Danvers felt the way she did." But aren't That's we what mixing? Brandon LeBlanc like, was planning to was trying to say with his uh, on Facebook too on the discussion group. He was talking about Mrs. Danvers being she's just loyal. So, <laughs> so I mean that was wrong, Brandon. But she's I mean, crazy. But so. the narrator says in chapter two, I, "I get why. I obviously I looked silly. I understand why." Mrs. Danvers looked down on me the way she did, especially after Rebecca, after, you know, and this is years later. This isn't what she's saying in the moment. So I think, well, she does try to get her to kill herself by jumping out a window. That seems fairly, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. She's bad. Mrs. Danvers is a crazy person. She's She's a crazy person. And she might be motivated by like pity and grieving and mourning, but girls malevolent. She's bad. But I do think that it's worth the question of, as David's saying, is it possible that, not, not for the sake of sympathy, but is it possible that maybe some of our narrator's impressions of her physical uh, intimidating presence are, are, are her own childish way of seeing the world? They're exaggerated in the mind of our narrator. Yeah, I can totally get with that. Totally. I'm really coming out big on this show. I'm really like, I so apparently I. I'm like, you okay. should like broody guys. That's my whole point. Right. Like, so <laughs> do you guys want to brood about anything? I will Let's, listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I got a paper cut in the scene where <laughs> trying to find that the scene where she tries to get her to, all right, Tim, I, I, yeah, I see. 
we got to end this. We got to talk about this further because for me, it's, it is a matter of degree. So let's, we can talk about this because everyone on the Facebook group is just going to be killing me for this one again. The malevolent and Danvers thing. We'll come, let's come back to it. Okay. Tim, anything else you want to add? I am so glad that we read this book. I can't believe I've never read this book before. I can't believe that I had knew so little about this book because having finished it, like it deserves a great, strong reputation. And hopefully we've kind of like furthered that reputation a little bit through the podcast. It's just a great book. It's such a wonderful read. And how do you got your final thoughts in, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, like I said, post your questions over on the Facebook group or email them to me, david at goldberrybooks.com if you'd like to submit a question that way and you're not on Facebook. I'm sure the um, conversation over there will be rousing and ruckus this week uh, before we do the Q&A episode and, and make sure you check on the movies. Don't forget about what's going on in the place. The thing, which is that Tim and Heidi, you are discussing Romeo and Juliet right now. So that'll be coming up soon. We just had the, just ran the Q&A episode. Anything you need to tell the people about that podcast? It is designed to kind of culminate with the April 23rd production on PBS of the National Theater's production of Romeo and Juliet. PBS will be broadcasting. I think it's, it will be a live performance of Romeo and Juliet. I'll just say one other thing. If you're one of the people who thinks, oh, Romeo and Juliet, what a cute story. What a chestnut. How nice. It's not really one of Shakespeare's best plays or something like that. Come have your mind changed. It's, it's, it deserves its place as like one of the Talk real Tim and Heidi being opinionated. <laughs> Man, for sure. Yeah, it deserves its place as one of like the zenith marks of Western literature. Agreed. All right. So yeah, go listen to that podcast. Subscribe. Uh, just search the place, the thing, or whatever podcast app you use. We also have the Daily Poem going on. You can subscribe for that as well. And we have a, a podcast. I think we can talk about it now. We've got a podcast for kids that's going to be available soon. It's called Withy Windle, and it's going to be part book club, part conversations with uh, children's book authors. So there's going to be eight episodes in season one, and we're going to have a trailer coming up soon. And so, you know, be on the lookout for that. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I think your kids will, will really like it. All right. With that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.